0: My name is Michael Renahan, and I'm the Director of Global Education here at Moraine Valley. And this is um, International Education Week, if you're not familiar with that. So this is the week where we embrace and we enjoy all the diversity that we have on campus, and we recognize many of the students from overseas. So joining you in the group today, you have a number of students here who have come from around the world to learn English at Moraine Valley. And they're learning not just our language, but about the game of baseball. So um, after Professor Fulton does his, his lecture today, we were hoping that you might like to join us over in the G building. we're going to play a little baseball. So we're going to teach him how to hit and things and to run the first base, not the third base, things like that. So it might be um, kind of fun if you'd like to join us, please. So anyway, without further ado, this is Josh Fulton, who I've known for many years, uh, professor of history here at Moraine Valley. And he's going to talk about the internationalization of baseball around the world. So without further ado, here you are, sir.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank nice you, Mike. Sure. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. There we go. And Mike, we'll head over right around, what, 115, 120? Is that kind of a, yeah. the, that's the plan? Okay, all right, sounds good. All right, uh, well, hello, everyone. Uh, I, it's funny, I, I started here at Moraine Valley uh, in, in the fall of 2008. Uh, and they told me two things uh, that I was never supposed to talk uh, with, with students about. Uh, one, never talk about the parking uh, because that'll just sort of create real problems. Uh, but two, never tell them what baseball team uh, you support. Uh, so I'm, I'm very thankful that no one has thrown anything at me. Uh, for me, wearing my uh, my Cubs uh, my Cubs colors today. Uh, now, I must say, uh, my my Cub fandom uh, is is a very long-standing thing. Uh, I I was born uh, in 1981, so of course, ancient history uh, for for many folks. Uh, but uh, there are photos of my parents taking me to a Cubs game that summer uh, when I was an infant. Uh, although my father was a Cardinals fan. uh, So of course, I always tell everyone that my Cubs fandom comes from, I guess, a teenage rebellion uh, of of some kind. Uh, So baseball was big in my house uh, when I was was a kid, just as it's been in in many houses, both in the US uh, and all over the world. Uh, So I was so thankful that Professor Renahan asked me to talk a little bit about the game that I am such a huge fan of, and that so many individuals around the world are fans of as well. So we're only going to talk for a little while. uh, And the plan is to be able to play some some ball and have some fun uh, a little bit later. Uh, So what I thought that we might do is talk a little bit about how the game kind of got going, some of the basics here in the US. And then as we do that, kind of go back and forth about how the game ended up spreading all over the world and becoming such a popular game depending on what country you go to. Now, I was joking a little bit before class. a little bit before today, this talk, that I was planning on wearing a, a jersey that my wife had gotten for me uh, when she was in Korea, uh, a Samsung Lions jersey. Uh, but she got it about 10 years ago. Uh, and of course, for me, that was about 25 pounds ago. Uh, so of course, this jersey is the one that fit. Uh, so, so here we are. Uh, so all right, baseball is a game that either folks absolutely adore it, like many others. Or they cannot stand it. Uh, you know, they cannot stand it. It has this sort of polarizing effect. And so, for those who love it, uh, a quote like this one seems very natural to them. So, in the early 20th century, in Washington D.C., there was a baseball team called the Senators. Uh, and this is a quote from Goose Goslin. And also, you know, baseball players sometimes have great names. You know, Goose Goslin. I love that. Uh, so he says here, "It was just a game. That's all it was." They didn't have to pay me. I'd have paid them to let me play. Listen, the truth is that it was more than fun. It was heaven, right? It was heaven. So, for those who, you know, once they sort of get into the game, once they kind of get a sense of the game, once they get hooked, right, uh, the game becomes that for them. And, you know, one of the the interesting parts about the game is that it has such a long story and such a long connection to the American story. What I thought that we would do is organize a couple points in looking through the history of baseball from some different terms that are common to the game itself. So batting practice, right? Batting practice. Uh, In the early days, baseball becomes a reflection of America's transformation. Its creation reflects the global connections to America's early story. For many, 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 many years, it was always assumed that a Civil War general, that a US military officer, an individual by the name of Abner Doubleday, created baseball in the early 1800s in America. Now, this has been proven to be a myth, but it was a myth that held on in America for a very, 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 very long time. Do we know precisely the date and time and exactly where baseball gets going? Not exactly, no. But what do we know? we know that even the game itself that America likes to claim as its own has strong connections to the immigrant, rich immigrant heritage that America has. So in the 18th and in the early 19th century we can take this back to England, back to games like what is called rounders, back to the very prominent English game of cricket, back to early American villages playing a game that they called town ball, And all of those things together by the 1820s and 30s and 40s and into the early 1850s will come to be the baseball that we know now today, right? It is a game that has evolved over time. It is also a game that as it evolves, it reflected the evolvement of the American nation itself. So in the 1840s and in the 1850s, the American nation is moving a bit off of farms and into cities. And some of the individuals who are doing that are bringing baseball with them, right? They're bringing baseball with them. So you're going to start to see club teams form. You're going to start to see versions of professionalization form. So the Knickerbockers are going to start to play. uh, And you're going to start to see things like games played uh, at a place called the Elysian Fields, uh, where individuals could come out and watch these games. And it's the rules that these New York leagues establish in the 1850s and into the early 1860s that become the common rules that when people come to see the game, they will then spread it all over the world. Right. So for example, the Canadians will also pick up baseball fairly early on. They do it with these rules from New York. Uh, they do it with these rules from New York. Now, They also have to spread a a sense of structure with baseball. So not everybody reads a physical newspaper anymore. But for most of the 20th century, if you had a team and you didn't know how the team did, you would go to the sports section and you would check the box score. Well, somebody had to create that. Uh, And his name was Henry Chadwick. uh, And he was one of those really early promoters. He was an English-American. He was one of those early promoters of baseball. All right. One of the first places that baseball will expand to is the nation of Cuba, all right, the nation of Cuba. And much like the controversies around the baseball origin story in America, there typically tend to be controversies around origin stories of baseball in really any nation that it becomes popularized in. In Cuba, that's no different. So the gentleman who you see listed there, supposedly he contributes to the bringing of baseball to Cuba in the 1860s. But some sources will tell you uh, it's an American military ship right, that does this. It really kind of depends. What do we know? We know that by the time you get to the 1870s, there is a professional Cuban league that by the end of the 1880s and early 1890s is so robustly popular that the professional leagues in the US are using this era as a time for barnstorming and sending individuals down to play exhibition games against those people. Right, against those teams, uh, and those only start to grow, these kinds of connections. For example, in the early 1900s in America, there is a manager whose name was John McGraw. He managed for nearly 50 years, something like this. Uh, And John McGraw was one of the early individuals to come down to Cuba and work with Cuban players and want to bring them back to the US as well uh, to play in Major League Baseball. Now, of course, given the, the racial realities of America in the early 1900s, this was a very difficult thing to accomplish, uh, but you know, this is something uh, that he is intended to do, uh, sort of convicted to do. Now, back in America, how does the game spread further? In the 1860s, the United States is in the midst of its very, very brutal civil war. All right, And so what you end up having is individuals who would have lived near small towns that may not have moved off of those towns or farms really in the entirety of their lives, plucked out of those places, put into army camps, and sent all over the continental United States. Well, one of the things those soldiers do in those army camps that we have record of is they start sharing the game of baseball. Uh, they start sharing the game of baseball, and so it's the American Civil War that also can, is one of these continual things that contributes to why baseball becomes such a popular thing. Again, you have any number of sort of promoters for baseball, such as Harry Wright, who you see here, uh, who his facial hair, you know, pretty good for for the 19th century. Uh, and again, you're starting to see club teams start to professionalize, different innovations in the rules also start to happen. I always love one of the early rules of baseball in the 1850s, uh, where if you caught a ball off of a bounce, it would still be an out, uh, which of course makes me think that I could have been a good player back in the 1850s, that that might have been a good thing. One of the other things that you will find in American baseball in the second half of the 19th century though, is those who sought to promote it, they will do so on the basis of trying to appeal to different cultures and social communities in America. So, one of the things that you'll see is the creation of a national league that emphasized the fact to the public that you couldn't drink there, particularly, you couldn't have games on Sundays, uh, and communities wouldn't have to worry about missing church because they wouldn't play games at this time, right? This kind of thing. Other leagues that would eventually form offered themselves as an alternative, where you could consume alcohol, you could drink beer. There would be games on Sundays, right? And so you have all of these different communities coming out to watch baseball at the times that they would want to be able to do it. Now, uh, the individual who you see there to the left is Andre Dawson. He's fairly famous because of his play with the Cubs. But before his play with the Cubs, uh, he was a Montreal expo. Uh, I always find the story of baseball in Canada to be an interesting part of the story of baseball from an international perspective because you have such a porous border between Canada and the United States, especially in the 1820s and 30s and 40s. You have individuals who will see this game in upstate New York and who will head up into Canada and will begin spreading it very quickly. But one of the interesting controversies, though, uh, I found in doing some of the research before today uh, is that you have some in Canada who claim uh, that they actually created the game first, Uh, that uh, they played a game in 1838 uh, at a place called Beachville, uh, and that that predates the game that Abner Doubleday actually played. There's no real evidence that bears that out to be true as well. There's a lot of controversy around both of those origin stories. Either way, it's clear that the game of baseball was keeping pace in America with Canada in the 1830s and 40s. By the time you get into the 1860s, you have teams from Ontario and around parts of Canada that are again embracing the rules from New York. By the time you get into the 1870s, there are actually international associations uh, where teams from America and Canada and elsewhere that are getting together and playing. Recently, you know, you have things like the, the World Baseball Classic or more, uh, you know, longer history. You have things like nations coming together with the Olympics. But even in the 1870s, you already have different teams from different countries coming together to play the game of baseball. Now, I I always love team names. These kinds of things are always fun. Uh, So in the 1870s, you actually have one called the London Tecumsehs and the Gulf Maple Leafs. Uh, So these are always great kinds of names uh, from that time period in the 1800s. Now, of course, today, yes, you have the, the Expos maybe, right with the Rays, but you certainly have the Toronto Blue Jays as well. All right, top of the third, right? So baseball's professionalization embraced America's industrial age, and its owners reflected their contemporaries. So as you start to see the professionalization of baseball, you start to see a separation of it from the local communities that it had used to be a part of. players on professional teams typically had come from particular areas, that becomes less so, and you start to get more uh, leading figures that want to be able to kind of make their mark on the game. And an individual like Al Spaulding would be an individual to highlight here. Not a particularly well-liked figure, but an incredibly resourceful figure, an incredibly important figure, uh, who becomes an owner and gets involved in promoting the game and gets involved in selling sporting goods for the game, right? This is becoming a very popular thing, so Al Spaulding wants to be the one to sell you the baseballs, he wants to be the one to sell you the different uniforms, all these different kinds of things that you're going to need. Late 1800s, early 1900s, again the game is evolving. Now today Of course, the concept of a free agent, players changing teams, right, these are norms. Late 1800s, this is the era in which things like the reserve clause is created, where owners are basically able to keep players sort of with them, with their teams, with their systems, and this will be the norm for generations to come. And it's, of course, a very uh, controversial thing for the players themselves. The beginning of the 20th century is also the era in which you finally see the different leagues in America. America come together and they play what they consider to be uh, the National League. Now the first World Series is played in 1903 uh, and Boston supposedly of course beats Pittsburgh uh, after a couple of games. Now in Mexico Right, in Mexico. Uh, I'll admit, when I was uh, a young man growing up in, in the 1980s, right, I was moderately aware of, of a Mexican-American pitcher by the name of Fernando Valenzuela. Uh, he was, was really prominent, was really popular. Uh, I thought that he was really, really cool. Well, Fernandomania, uh, as it existed in the 1980s, was not exactly the only time uh, that there had been connections between baseball and the nation of Mexico. In looking at this origin story of how baseball makes its way to Mexico, much like the story of Canada, much like the story of Cuba, there's a lot of competing views. Uh, so. There are some who argue that baseball traveled with American soldiers to Mexico during the Mexican-American War between 1846 and 1848. There are others who say that in the aftermath of what's called the Ten Year War with Cuba, you're going to see individuals either from Cuba or the Dominican Republic who bring it to Mexico uh, in the early 1890s. Either way, baseball from that period starts to grow in popularity. And after the era of the revolution in Mexico, by about 1920, early 1920s, you're going to start to see the creation uh, of a structured professional series of teams that are going to play throughout Mexico. Now, that league, which is created in 1925, for me is an incredibly interesting league, partly because of the racial realities in the United States in the first half of the 20th century. Right, African-American players are not allowed to be able to play in Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is for whites only, sadly. And so what will happen is you will see players from what are termed at the time the Negro Leagues head down to Mexico uh, and actually sign up and play with teams. Uh, So some of the the leading stars uh, of of these teams in America will be able to to play here as well, not only against players from Mexico or the Dominican Republic, uh, but also against uh, other players uh, at the time. All right, so if we are then taking stock Right, of baseball's first few generations. And if we were to put together, let's say, an all-star team, right? An all-star team. Everybody loves to debate, right? Who would be on the, the all-star team? Who's the best, right? That kind of thing. If we were to do that in those first generations, it would probably have figures like Walter Johnson, Cy Young, whom the pitching award is named from, or the individual that you see there to the left, a guy by the name of Christy Matthewson. Christy Mathewson was an incredible pitcher in the early 20th century, but someone who also suffered the effects of being exposed to gas uh, during the First World War, uh, and this contributed to his eventual passing away. Uh, A player like Three Finger Brown as well, who had suffered a, a hand accident, was a noted pitcher at this time. Other players who would have been particularly noted, players like Honus Wagner or Honus Wagner, Ty Cobb, certainly uh, Tris Speaker, and Frank Chance, or even Shoeless Joe Jackson. Now, each one of these individuals are playing in an era, uh, the dead ball era, in which home runs are not emphasized. They're playing in an era in which, of course, all of these players would have been white, right? They would have been white. Now, bottom of the fourth. Barnstorming, the act of traveling baseball, began in the 19th century in the US and has since remained an integral way the game has spread, right? So if you own a professional team, right? If you own a professional team in the US, you obviously want more people to come out and see your team play. because there's no TV revenue at the early you know, the 1800s, right? There's no radio at the end of the 1800s. So you want tickets. Well, if you can't play your game in certain parts of the United States, Maybe you can play it in other parts of the world. So Al Spaulding, in particular, is noted for a tour, a world tour, between 1888 and 89, where he takes players all over the world to try to promote the game of baseball. Now, that's great, but we should, of course, keep in mind it's the late 1800s. This is the era of imperialism. This is the era of colonialism. So there are certain elements of race that are emphasized with this kind of a world tour. The early 1900s and baseball's connections to Latin America are a little bit different. By the early 1900s, you have this almost circuit of barnstorming where it was acceptable for both white and black players in the US to come down to either Mexico, primarily to Cuba, or to the Dominican Republic, or to a few other nations, uh, you know, typically in the winter, and to be able to play on a number of leagues. Uh, and what's interesting with that, again, is that they're going to play games that they're not allowed to play in the US. right? So they're able to play games where white players play against black players. Right? The integration of baseball doesn't happen until Jackie Robinson in 1947, but uh, you actually get these incidences of, of integrated baseball uh, within uh, these different nations. And so I think it really represents one of the interesting and wonderful parts uh, about globalized baseball. Now. Some of this stuff does start to change right after the war is over, right after World War II is over. Uh, So for example, uh, there was a fairly famous American pitcher by the name of Bob Feller. Uh, He was a white pitcher. uh, And he uh, formed an all-star team uh, of barnstormers. And they played against an African-American pitcher by the name of Satchel Paige, uh, who was also a well-noted individual at that particular time. All right. The interwar period was an age of excess, depression, and mass consumerism. And baseball reflected America's democratization and golden age. The 1920s, the 1930s, and the early 40s in America is the era in which baseball becomes this sort of regarded as as a national pastime. Right? It's regarded as a national pastime. A good example for this might be During World War II, during the Battle of the Bulge, you had uh, German soldiers who one of the things that they did was that they would try to put on US uniforms uh, and to try to infiltrate the American lines. Uh, And so you would have to, if you were an American soldier, ask these individuals questions to determine whether or not they were an American. Uh, And so, if you watch World War II films of the 1940s, right, what's the one kind of question they ask these individuals to determine whether or not they're an American? They ask him questions about baseball, uh, right? The assumption being that you would, you would know this, right? You would know the answer to questions like, what's a Texas Leaguer, uh, right? If you're an American in the 1940s. Now, perhaps the most famous American, right? The most famous baseball player, uh, particularly during the interwar period, is going to be the guy that you see right there, George Herman Ruth or Babe Ruth. Uh, he is a key figure in helping to transform baseball in the 1920s, not to just this era uh, of singles and doubles but and, and fun, uh, but to an era in which the home run is the dominant form uh, of scoring runs in baseball games. He hits over 700 of them. He supposedly calls his shot in a game at Wrigley Field uh, in the mid-1930s. And he helps to transform baseball into this celebrity contest, where you now get tens of thousands more people who come out to see a game that they might not have come out to see before. And you start to see the creation of stadiums, where now you have 40, 50, 60, 70,000 people that can come out to see them. The 20s and 30s is also the era in which communications technology is changing, which means how you promote the game will change. So in the late 20s and early 30s, you're going to start to hear the game broadcast on the radio. So perhaps one of the most famous radio announcers of baseball uh, is the individual that you see there on the top. His name's Red Barber, Red Barber, Uh, you know, one of the most famous individuals here. 1930s, early 1940s, if a player was particularly good, if they were really liked by the public, you would see uh, pop cultural songs made about them. Which I always find interesting, right? Baseball is maybe not as popular as it used to be, so you know you don't really hear pop culture songs made about like I don't know Tom Brady or LeBron James or sort of that kind of thing, right? Uh, but Willie Mays, uh, he gets one. Joe DiMaggio, he gets one. Joe DiMaggio was an incredibly popular figure uh, in the 1940s, uh, partly because uh, of his great streak, his baseball streak, which we'll talk about in a minute. All right. So bottom of the fifth, the growth of baseball in the Dominican Republic followed expats from Cuba during their 10-year war and exploded in the 20th century as winter leagues across Latin America sought to attract Negro League players. All right, so you're going to see by the end of the 1870s across the Dominican Republic baseball be introduced and it grow in popularity. Now, given the transformation of the political situation in the Dominican Republic, you're going to see a dictator come to power uh, whose last name is Trujillo uh, in the early 20th century. He liked baseball. uh, And so one of the things that you would see is an emphasis on the part of his government in building up new stadiums uh, for the playing of the game of baseball and also an active effort on his part to be able to recruit individuals from the uh, the United States to come down and play in these new leagues in the Dominican Republic. Now Primarily, they're going to be able to effectively recruit from Negro League players because they're not welcome in the major leagues. Uh, but you will get a number of different players who will come down and play. So Satchel Page would be one of them. Uh, and you will actually get Dominican players who will come up uh, and play in, in, in the uh, major leagues as well. The first being Osvaldo Virgil, uh, who uh, breaks into the major leagues uh, in, in 1956. All right. Uh, top of the sixth a rising force in the 20th century was the Negro Leagues reflecting the inherent inequality in the modern ball game Players from the league would commonly supplement their income by playing across Latin America. Uh, given the fact that I teach history I will have many individuals who will ask me uh, you know if I could go back in time to see something you know what would I like to do? And most often, I say I wouldn't really like to go back in time because I value things like air conditioning and Tylenol and you know these kinds of things. Uh, but if I could, I would want to go back and watch a Negro Leagues baseball game. Uh, I think this would be amazing, right? Individuals, players like Josh Gibson, uh, who supposedly hit more home runs, uh, not chemically aided uh, than anyone ever, uh, an individual like Cool Papa Bell, who was referred to as the fastest player that basically ever lived, uh, and a pitcher like Sam Satchel Paige, who does eventually play in the major leagues, uh, but at this point he's in his 40s, possibly early 50s, uh, and you know was not the player uh, that he was decades before. All right, bottom of the six. Players and fans sought to support the United States war effort during World War II, many serving as distinguished combat veterans. So the era of World War II is obviously transformational, both in the US and around the world. But it's a time period when American forms of culture are on display globally, which means, of course, that baseball is going to become a big part of that. So you're going to have leading players of the era, guys like Bob Feller, who's pictured there to the right, individuals like Ted Williams uh, as well. Uh, join the military, and you're also going to have these sort of great feats, these great athletic feats uh, in this time period as well. So, in the first half of the 20th century, right, America has many different immigrant groups from all around the world coming to the country. Some groups are supportive of this, others are not particularly supportive of this. One community was the Italian-American community. In uh, the late 1930s, early 1940s, the Italian-American community is sort of growing in acceptance, but is perhaps not fully accepted all over America. There is a, a strong backlash against individuals who are Catholic, for example. Well, Joe DiMaggio, uh, a player, the center fielder for the New York Yankees, uh, a young man in 1941, starts to change some of this. And by the end of the summer of 1941, he's broadly accepted around the country. Uh, he, uh, he, he has a, a hitting streak. now. Hitting safely in one or two games is quite a feat. He hits safely in 56 straight games. Uh, And again, remember, this is the era in which these things aren't followed on social media. They're not followed on TV. right? This is something where individuals rely prominently on the newspaper in order to be able to get the news. And there was this sense of unity in America prior to World War II when folks are becoming interested in a guy named Joe DiMaggio. All right, we're getting sort of down to the end here. Top of the seventh. In the interwar period and after, the importance of baseball in Cuba, as well as Latin America, reflects the sports globalization, as well as the ties across the region. All right. So again, prior to the integration of of baseball, of the major leagues, in the United States, players from the US, particularly African-American players, played commonly and constantly in nations like Cuba in order to increase their income, supplement their income, and to be able to enjoy the game. But the game in Cuba was in and of itself one heck of a game. Uh, By the time you get to the mid-20th century, players on the Cuban national team were noted as basically being their own version of professionals. Now, what I find interesting, of course, about Cuba, after the revolution, after the ascendancy of someone like Fidel Castro, uh, right, after the politicization of baseball here, Uh, is that baseball becomes this very politicized thing uh, where you have individuals from the Cuban national team trying to defect. Remember when I was younger watching the news, you'd hear things about, you know, I was watching this new thing called Sports Center, and they would have these things about Cuban defectors, and I would wonder what is that, right? But again, it shows not only the prominence of the game of baseball in Cuba, but also how closely tied it is to national identity there as well as to national identity in the U.S., All right, I thought, you know, since we're in the middle of the seventh inning, a bit of a seventh inning stretch might be in order. Now, if you are completely unaware to the game of baseball, in the mid 20th century, there was a player uh, for the New York Yankees and his name was Yogi Berra. Uh, And Yogi Berra was noted for some of his, let's just say, Perhaps, I guess, for the, the, the communications professors, it would be malapropisms, I guess, or perhaps uh, uh, some of his, his foibles uh, and some of his sayings. Uh, so I do, I do always love these. Uh, let's see. So this is from uh, the USA Today. Uh, they put together a list of the greatest Yogi Berra sayings. Uh, and I, I always enjoy these. Let's see. Number one, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Uh, number two, you can observe a lot just by watching. It ain't over till it's over. Number four, it's like deja vu all over again. Uh, no one goes there nowadays. It's too crowded. Baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. I always love that one. Uh, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. We made too many wrong mistakes. Okay. Uh, congratulations. I knew the record would stand until it was broken. Uh, so... Uh, Yogi Berra was an all-star catcher uh, is a hall of famer uh, and would eventually come to be a a manager as well all right Uh, so bottom of the seventh all right so baseball mirrored America during and after World War II, creating alternatives to the pre-war norm and the construction of new norms uh, in the aftermath of the war now some of you may have seen Uh, the film, uh, A League of Their Own. Has anyone ever seen the film, A League of Their Own, right? Uh, It has perhaps the most famous quote from Tom Hanks, there's no crying in baseball, right? There's no crying in baseball, right? That kind of thing, right? The American uh, Association of Girls Professional Baseball League, right, was a real thing. It was not just created for the film. In the 1940s, there was an assumption that given the the era of World War II, that you might not get as many individuals to come out and watch uh, Major League Baseball because the stars aren't going to be playing in it. So there was this effort to create a a baseball league uh, where women from around the United States uh, would have an opportunity to be able to play. Uh, so there is actually a team in Chicago, uh, if I recall correctly, they were called the Chicago Colleens, I think. Uh, so there's a team in Rockford, and there's teams all around the Midwest. Uh, so it starts during the era of World War II. It goes up until about the early 1950s, right, the early 1950s. Uh, so there's a lot of different sort of aspects of uh, this, and the film does, I think, a fairly good job of showing parts of this. All right. Perhaps... Uh, you know in addition uh, to the girls baseball league right the women's baseball league uh, in the late 1940s perhaps the other major thing to happen as far as baseball is concerned is obviously the integration of baseball in 1947 right Jackie Robinson had been in the US army uh, he'd been a, a college athlete Uh, and integrates uh, baseball in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, Now, Larry Doby follows soon after this, uh, but it is the integration of baseball and the the difficulties of 1947 for Jackie Robinson uh, that really start to, again, transform the game into the kind of game that we know it as uh, sort of today, right? Uh, By the time you get into the 1950s in the early 1960s, the transformation of who plays the game and where they're from Uh, Really is, uh, I think, one of the the wonderful highlights of the game itself. All right. So, the individual who you see there to the left, uh, who's a well regarded figure not only in Pittsburgh, uh, but I would argue in his his home of Puerto Rico, uh, is certainly going to be Roberto Clemente, right? Roberto Clemente. So, following Jackie Robinson, baseball owners looked to recruit players from far outside the status quo, and the globalized nature of the sport grew on the fields. Right? We can have larger discussions about the perhaps possible exploitation of young men to play the game of baseball both in the U.S. and in Latin America. But by the time you get to the end of the 1950s and into the 1960s, the idea of multiple players from around the world playing on these teams that had been around for generations starts to become more normalized. So you're going to start to see individuals like Clemente from Puerto Rico. You're going to start to see Felipe Lu, Juan Marichal, uh, and players from around the Dominican Republic. Uh, I was always told by individuals that in the early 1960s, the real way that you would watch baseball if you didn't get to go to the game was every weekend you could watch one game. It was called the game of the week. Uh, And in the early 1960s, Juan Marichal faced off against a guy named Warren Spahn in a pitcher's duel where they pitched for basically the whole game, hundreds of pitches. Uh, And so the the public came to revere uh, Juan Marichal as a result of this. Uh, And of course, we have Fernando Valenzuela uh, from Mexico like I mentioned earlier. All right. Uh, So of course, uh, the uh, poster that you see there is of Babe Ruth. uh, And of course, the introduction of baseball to Japan uh, must be recognized if we're going to be talking about baseball's globalization. Prior to the war in the Pacific, Japan's embrace of baseball grew following barnstorming tours and has come to define much of the nation's sporting culture. There is, as well, some debates about the origin story of baseball in Japan, a number of different sources cited as 1871, uh, and US forces uh, from the USS Colorado coming here. You do have, as well, baseball tours, uh, such as that of Babe Ruth and other major leaguers in the early 1940s uh, that bring the game there. Now. After the Second World War, you see the establishment of the professional leagues, the Nippon Professional Baseball League uh, in 1950, and it, of course, has grown into a robust baseball culture uh, that is, in some ways, very different than what you see in the United States. Uh, I've read some sources that compare watching games in Japan a little bit to like watching college football in the United States in terms of how seriously the fans take it, how integral or how interested uh, they get into the game, which is really wonderful, right? Which is really wonderful. All right. The image you see there, it probably doesn't mean very much to any of us. But that's the Astrodome, all right? That's the Astrodome. In the second half of the 20th century, baseball in the US transforms in any number of ways. For one thing, it's going to start to be played inside. It's going to start to be played inside. For another, you're actually going to start to see the mounds raised. In the 1960s, pitchers ruled the day. Right? They rule the day. Players like Bob Gibson overwhelmed individuals uh, in a way that we can't even possibly fathom today. So what you're going to end up seeing is the mounds raised and then eventually lowered uh, in order to try to met this out. You're also going to see the creation of something called the designated hitter. Uh, and again, you're going to start to see new teams. And by the 80s and early 90s, the concept of free agency that we know. Now, in the last 20 years or so, baseball has gone through a number of different issues or different crises from strikes to steroids uh, to a home run race that was probably chemically, well, it was chemically aided, uh, and more recently to issues of sign stealing, right, to issues of sign stealing with teams like the Houston Astros. But it remains a popular game. All right, uh, two final points because I know we got to go play. Uh, Top of the ninth, South Korea embraced baseball in the early 20th century, but it's only in the last generation has the game grown in popularity. Uh, Some sources will say uh, that it's 1905 uh, when the game was introduced uh, to the nation of South Korea. Uh, And while I've had a chance to go to the country, and it's absolutely wonderful, I'll admit I didn't get a chance to go to a game. So that course made me very upset. what do you end up seeing, right? So, in the early 1980s, you're going to see the creation of a professional baseball organization in Korea. Uh, and by the end of the 90s, you're going to start to see players born in Korea who will end up in the United States playing in the major leagues. Uh, so, Chan Ho Park uh, would be an example of this. Now, Part of our talk is about this idea of the globalization of baseball and how baseball is able to bring people together, both in the US and around the world. And so I thought kind of a a fun, sort of silly way to maybe comment on that for our last point uh, is is through food. I'm sure some of us uh, have enjoyed or maybe not enjoyed food from concessions, uh, both at baseball stadiums and all over. Uh, In the, the latter half of the 20th century in America, it became very prominent, of course, to be able to get food in a commemorative Uh, mini baseball helmets. Uh, So I'll admit, I cannot think of a more sort of fusion idea uh, than the kinds of food that you'll find at Dodger Stadium these days in the 21st century. Uh, This is a a new sushi bowl uh, in a commemorative helmet, uh, the kind of thing that you would not have seen uh, the New York Knickerbockers or the Cincinnati Red Stockings have at their stadiums in the first half of the 1800s. I think, if anything, it represents the the wonderful litany uh, of diverse experiences that one can have at baseball. All right. Any questions?